Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunities that you provide for us. They are abundant. And help us to be willing uh, to do whatever you would have us do to further your gospel and to strengthen your kingdom for you have chosen to use us. Many times it is a mystery, Lord, but it is your will. So help us to be obedient and submissive to that will. Lord, we had asked that you would also speak to us through your word, that you would fill us full of your Holy Spirit, that as we turn to you and seek forgiveness of daily sins, we know that you forgive us for your word says you do. But we also ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your spirit, the spirit of love, and help us to gain knowledge and wisdom to exercise that gift of love in a special way. So Lord, teach us. Guide us. May we hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we left off in verse 21 of chapter 12. I'm going to back up just a little bit. And we're seeing the demise, so to speak, of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ from a human standpoint. It is God's victory the way that this is going. But from a human standpoint, you would think, well, he started out so well. It went from great, his ministry was great, and it's heading towards gloomy, where everybody abandons him. He was under this uh, yoke of being the Messiah, but the yoke was easy for him to go out and heal the people and to teach God's word. And there was commendation with his ministry. All the people that got fed, the 5,000 you know, people got fed, plus the women and children, that was great. But it went from commendation to condemnation. And by the end of this chapter, you're going to see that the, the Pharisees are just fit to be tied. They just cannot stand Jesus doing what he does, and Jesus turns it back on them. During the rest of this chapter, he is basically condemning the Pharisees for what they have done, what they believe, the hardness of the heart, the prideful attitude that is on the inside, all of that, he just points at them and basically says, you are condemned. So instead of the ministry of Jesus being condemned, Jesus condemns those who will not believe and will not be submissive to God, and these are the people of God. They have gotten so far away. Verse 14 that I read last week says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So they had just had it with him. I'm just going to read through 15 through 21 again. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nation. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will ever hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Now, there's a lot packed in here. For instance, the bruised reed he will not break, and the smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is metaphor, and you never want to just take metaphor literally if it says jesus will not break a bruised reed or if he will not snuff out a smoldering wick he's not talking about lamps and he's not talking about plants he's talking about something else and it's our job to figure out 
Well, what is he talking about? Why, why does he use this nebulous language or this metaphoric language? And he has his purposes in it because the people back then, they could understand when a story is told. They were in an agrarian society. Most of them were completely uneducated. And they would be familiar with what a bent reed is. And they'd be familiar with what a smoldering wick is. Now, they used to take a flax plant and they'd make this wick and they'd stick it in their little um, oil lamp that was there and it would burn constantly. And that wick sometimes would have to be trimmed and they'd pull it out. And if you know you have a candle, like from wicks and sticks, and you light that thing and then you blow it out, there's that glow and the smoke is coming up from it, but it's still red. It is just hot. You wouldn't want to touch it unless you licked your fingers to snuff it out. Jesus does not do that to the wick. Also, the reed, the bruised reed, he does not break off. In other words, this reed, especially in marsh areas, if you guys know what cattails are, the cattails will grow up and then they'll just kind of bend over. If you go by Lindo Lake, especially in the springtime, if there's been some rain, you'll get the cattails coming up out there and you look out the reeds and half of the reeds are bent over. And you go, wow, that's interesting. You can drive by and actually see an illustration of what is being talked about here in the scripture. And Jesus wouldn't go through and clear out all the bent ones, you know, because they're harvesting for whatever reason. Stuff like that. Jesus tells us that this is the story that those who are weak, those who spiritually just can't get up to speed, those physically who just can't muster the strength, psychologically, they they just don't have the wherewithal to maintain during a trial. And and they they are caught almost. They don't have all those attributes that you would see maybe in a leader that just says, go forth, it's going to be tough, and it's okay, it's only a flesh wound, even though I lost my arm, it's all right, keep going. You know, it's not like that. The person goes by the wayside and said, I've been injured and I can't go forward. The Messiah who has come along, he helps those people, the ones who are the weakest, the ones who are psychologically stricken, the ones who are spiritually beat down by the enemy and physically they can't do anything. This is the Jesus gentle and mild, except when he goes to the temple and then he makes a whip and he drives out the money changers from the temple. Then he just kind of takes it up a couple of notches, maybe about 10 notches. But for the most part, and though, by the way, that was against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people that controlled the temple. Everyone else who was weak, who was like a sheep lost without a shepherd, he was gracious to them. He helped every single person that came his way. He did not deny anyone. So this is a characteristic of the Messiah. And how long will he do this? He will do this until justice has its victory. Now, I've told you before, I have a strong sense of justice. When I see something wrong where it's just not going on. For instance, I, you know, I, I like to look at what the millennials are looking at and read what they're reading. And I saw this little video and I think it was probably in Asia somewhere. And this guy is on this little moto and he's going and you see this on security cameras and he's going down the road and he sees this woman with a little purse. So he swerves over and he nabs her purse and he keeps on going. He takes off, and the, you can see the woman just going, no, you know, running after him on the security camera. Coming this way, it looks like it's a, 
a taxi or something else, and he saw exactly what took place, and he turns right into the moto, pins him up against the wall, and what did I say? Oh, poor guy. No, I go, yes! Got this guy justice. How dare he steal this from that poor woman? She probably had all her identification and money in there. So I have this strong sense of justice. When the bully comes along and the bully gets taken out, I revel in that. I probably shouldn't because, you know, it's violent. I can't help it. I confess to you, confession is good for the soul. That's how I am when I see that stuff. And Jesus is going to come along and he's going to exercise justice. When all these people who are doing these nefarious acts that are out there and they're just ripping people off and how many phone calls do you get a week from somebody who wants to rip you off? I mean, I get those all the time on my cell. I finally got an app that just stops everybody from doing anything. It just throws them out to oblivion. And, and Jesus will come along and he's going to take care of that. Now, at the end of the millennial period, people are going to want to throw off that yoke. They're going to want to turn to Jesus. You make us do this. You make us live this way. And this is not fair. And we want to live our own way. And we're going with Satan. We're going to go back after you, Jesus, who leads from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. And you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to say, that's it. Out of the pool, you're done. Everything gets destroyed. Great great white throne judgment. And he judges everything. And then the earth will be reigned, the new earth will be reigned in righteousness and nobody will desire to do what is wrong because he's going to give us a new nature at that particular point. And it's going to be glorious. The place that we're going to occupy is going to be fantastic. But until then, we're to follow his example and we're not to break off a bruised reed or snuff out a wick. We're to pay attention to those people who are spiritually weak, who are physically weak, who need help, who need assistance. This is the very heart of God. And that's what he's talking about in here. So it gives us a picture of who God is. Now, it also says that he won't quarrel or cry out. They were expecting the Messiah to come along, just take over, get rid of the Romans, set up his kingdom. He wouldn't go through the streets, scream excitedly, because that's often what happens. If you go down to Mexico... And especially when we're building homes down there, the people will go through the streets and they'll have a little Datsun or something like that that's from 1977. And, and they'll have these huge speakers on it and they're going through the towns. Hola! And it's just as loud as it can be and they're trying to sell something. And, you know, that's how they get people's attention. Jesus would never do anything like that. Jesus just walked the streets wherever he went, the people he touched, it would be without fanfare. He wouldn't be crying out, making his message known. He let his work speak for him. The, the Messiah was also expected not only to overturn the government, but also enforce a system of worship. God never requires us to worship him. It is all by invitation. Anybody who wants to bow at his feet on their knees or prostrate, he says, that's good. That's, that's a sign of humility. And because those who do that find it in their heart to get rid of the pride, God will lift them up and he will exalt them. See, the way up is down. And the way down is up. When you lift yourself up, you think, I'm pretty good. Well, it's not so good because the Lord 
will put down anybody that has that kind of pride. And so this is also the section that we just read there. It comes out of Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. It talks about a bruised reed and a smoldering wick, and, and it will not falter. No, no one can be discouraged during that time because we know that all this will come to end when justice has come. And that, by the way, as he's doing this, he's bringing the salvation to the people. He always had the intent that nations will put their trust in him, He always had the intent of getting the gospel to the entire world, not just salvation for the Jews. It is for the Jews first. They are the chosen people, but he intended it to go worldwide. How does he do that? How does he accomplish that today? Through us. Now, I I can just about promise you, we're going up to Yuba City. We're going to make these bunk beds, the dormitories, the walls, the showers. We're going to put all that in. People are going to get trained. People are going to come up there and work, and eventually the word is going to go out, the gospel is going to reach somebody, and when that somebody gets reached, they're going to receive salvation. We are setting up for that to happen. You will get the blessing for those people who eventually go up and give the gospel. This is how it's intended to work. We don't always have to be the one to witness, although that is incredibly fun. Uh, Some people say, it drives me crazy. I get so scared on the inside. I'm going to say the wrong thing. And it, it is so wonderful to be able to share the gospel when you have the knowledge to do that. And the knowledge is available to everyone if you just exercise it. So this is God's design. Now, going on from this point, with the salvation going to everyone, all the nations will put their trust in him. It reverts back to... These Pharisees and Sadducees, it says, then they, verse 22, then they brought him a demon-possessed man. Now, I'd like to know who it is that brought the demon-possessed man. Was it the people, maybe family members? Was it the Pharisees? The Pharisees were in the habit of trying to set Jesus up and trip him up. And so I have a tendency to think that, but it's not clear from the section in Scripture. It could have been a family member saying, would you please help him? But the Pharisees were watching him, analyzing everything he did during that time, and they were ready to condemn him. They weren't looking to the Scripture saying, wow, he's doing this, and that's what the Scripture said. (coughs) Excuse me. All they were doing was, what is he doing wrong, and we're going to condemn him because he has all these people around him, and we don't like it. That's what was taking place. He goes on. Here he says, and then they brought the demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that... He could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? And this is a valid question. And if they're asking this and the Pharisees hear this, they're apoplectic. They're probably busting veins in their neck and turning all red. You know, that grimacing type of thing taking place. It goes on verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now they're just speaking foolishness is what they're doing. Because he goes into this little explanation of (coughs) how can a house stand if the house is divided? For instance, or for an example, say this side said, you know what? We like the temperature on this side. That's why we sit on this side. And I'm a right-handed person. I prefer to look over my right shoulder when I'm looking up at the front. But this is the left-handed side. And the left-handed side doesn't like that. Now, what if we change the seating in here? 
where everybody had to go up the outside and it was just a solid row. Oh, no, don't do that. And an uprising takes place over here. You took away my side. What if we changed the seats and we moved them around or something like, no, don't do that. What if we didn't serve coffee and only hot chocolate? No. What if no donuts and we only gave carrots and celery? I mean, there there would be an uprising like... What have you done to my little church? You've changed it. And there would be disagreement. And pretty soon, I'm leaving. I don't like celery. I'm never going to eat celery. It's just a bunch of filler anyhow. Where's the donuts? You're going to get that kind of problem. Now, I'm being a little jovial on this. And it gets much more serious. I remember one of the books that I read when I first started out in ministry was How to Prevent a Church Split by Gene Edwards. And there was actually some plots to kill the pastor by some of the leaders inside the church because they didn't like what he was doing. There was an argument in a church split because the color of the roof wasn't the right color. I mean, just ridiculous stuff. And you think, in the Christian church? Oh, yes, in the Christian church. The things that we argue over, it's like, in the scheme of things, this doesn't matter. And so if there's no unity... The point is, you're going to divide, and it's going to be destroyed. The unity that we possess is what Jesus has given us. He's told us how to live, how to act. If we do those things and what to believe, if we do those things, there's going to be unity. But when we start going off, for instance, uh, who in here has never complained about anything? Yeah, you laugh. You probably already did it this morning on the way here. The roads are all wet now. I'm going to have to wash my car now. You know, whatever the case might be. And what does the Lord say? Do not complain about anything. Nothing we are to complain about. But we choose to do that. We choose not to live the way the Lord wants us to live. And so going back to this, when the Pharisees heard that, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So this is a foolish argument. If he were Satan, how could his plan succeed? His plan is to be a representative of the Father, to show salvation to the people. And if he's casting out demons by the prince of demons, his plan would be foiled, just as I give you the illustration. But the things that he gives us here, there are three different arguments and then a point or an accusation he makes. The first one, Satan against Satan, it doesn't work. And as we will read, he will say, your own exorcist will judge you, of judge against you in this matter. And we'll see how that folds out. And also, Satan is a strong man. <clears throat> and Jesus is superior to Satan or stronger than Satan. Let's read about this. In verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts. And by the way, God knows everything that we think, every single person billions of people he has it all in his mind every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand if satan drives out satan he is divided against himself how then can his kingdom stand it's just a rational argument he's putting them to shame because they're just thinking of any foolish thing that comes out of their mouth pours down from their lifeless brain that they don't have the spirit of god living in them and the reason they do that is because again their pride and so he says you're, you're talking like a fool is what you're doing a house divided cannot stand so that's the first thing the second thing and if i drive out demons by beelzebub by whom do your people drive them out so then they will be your judges but if i drive out demons 
by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, it can be the leaders of the Jews, the ones who are the exorcists that would testify against the Jews themselves. It could also be the people that have been healed, that turn to God and say, no, this is a work of God. So there's going to be a testimony against these people who make this accusation that you cast these demons out by the prince of demons or Beelzebub. And the last point he makes, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house, which makes sense. If you go into a house and you're a robber, you're going to want to have some type of punishing bat or gun or knife to subdue the man who is in the house. If the man in the house has a baseball bat or a knife or a gun, it's going to be a fist fight. It's going to be bad or somebody's going to get shot, right? Well, another explanation or another uh, version of this is in Luke chapter 11, verses 21 through 23. It says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So that is the accusation, the point that he's making after all this is done. But you have to dissect this too. Again, he's speaking in metaphor. He's not speaking clearly, but they were getting the gist of what he is talking about. Now, if you had to say, well, who is the strong man? The strong man in this illustration is Satan. He's the strong one. And you cannot take his possessions unless first you bind him. Who binds him? It is Jesus. And what does he take from him? He takes the plunder, which are the souls of individuals. He sets them free where Satan wanted to hold them captive. So you see how the illustration given in metaphoric language comes to life when you actually get the meaning of what's going on here. And not only does he retrieve the possessions, but he distributes them. So those people that get saved, they are a tremendous witness. They go out and they tell everyone about the gospel and what God has done for them. Jesus is pointing out that he is more powerful than the strong man in the house. And the Pharisees understood that. And he goes on to talk about who's greater as we get to the end of the chapter here, but he's certainly claiming to be greater than Satan himself. If somebody comes up to you today and says, I am greater than Satan himself, you'd probably laugh him to scorn is what you would do. But Jesus, you don't have to laugh at him because he can actually do it. He has the power over the spiritual world. Now this point or this accusation, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now this is very poignant, not only for the Pharisees, but for us as well. This is where the application comes in. The Jewish leaders were actually working against the one who was stronger than Satan. And when they come to this realization, they didn't repent They just got more determined. He is accusing the Jews of working against the kingdom of God. And they are the ones that are supposed to be the carriers of the word of God. But they're actually working against the kingdom. This is an indictment. This is an accusation against them. Now, how are they doing this? Number one, by opposition. And according to Jesus' own words, by inaction and inactivity. Let me read it to you again. He who is not with me 
is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, the hand hasn't been put to the plow. You're not plowing up the field. Like when we go to Yuba City, we're plowing the field. Another man plants and God causes the fruit to grow. So we're going to get out there, sweat, muscle, and we're going to till the ground. And again, that's metaphoric language. Well, what about for us, <coughs> believers? <clears throat> this is where we do the self-reflection in Scripture. If you do the inductive Bible study, observation, interpretation, application. We have to apply what we read. So we examine ourselves. Remember, the Scripture is like a mirror. We hold it up and we say, am I like this or that? Am I a sinner saved by grace or am I a sinner condemned in the eyes of God? And what makes a sinner saved by grace? Well, there's going to be fruit of some kind. What is that fruit? It is an individual who has put his hand or her hands to the plow and said, I'm getting on with it. I'm going to be about the master's business. And the New Testament, especially the Gospels, they, it is just ubiquitous in there. Every time an illustration comes up of those who work with God and those who don't like the sheep and the goats, for instance, that we will get to, and the kingdom parables, which is coming up in the next chapter, chapter 13, all of that applies. So for the believer, we have to ask ourselves, am I standing in opposition to Jesus Christ in his work? If he says to do something, am I saying, no, I'm going to do my own thing, or no, I'm not going to believe that, I'm going to believe what I want to believe. When I teach the youth over there on Thursdays, I let them know specifically, what does your opinion mean, is what I tell them. And they turn to me and they go, absolutely nothing, is what they tell me. And of course, Drew is a big one up at Calvary Chapel Alpine on that. Our our opinions mean nothing. And how many opinions do we have? It's like having two, two Jewish lawyers, they have three opinions, you know, that's the way it works. And we are the same way. You know, we, we may have four or five different opinions, but we haven't honed it down to what, what is God's opinion? My opinion means nothing. He's the one that is the arbiter of absolute truth, and we need to trust in him for what is right and wrong. But oftentimes we don't want to do that. We want our own truth, and we want to live our own way, and that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews, were doing. So a believer who is active and unified with Jesus and his church is to be working for the kingdom. And this is actively. This is not passively. This is not where you say, well, and some people can only do this, where they say, well, I'll pray. And some people, that is their job, solely. But for the most part, that's everybody's job, and you're supposed to do something on top of that. You're supposed to actually put your hands to the plow. (coughs) This kind of action... An attitude can never be forced on somebody. You better start working for the kingdom or your very salvation is going to be in jeopardy. You're probably not even a believer anywhere. Look at what you're wearing today. What's your attitude and how you haven't learned how to speak Christianese either. You don't know how Zana and you don't know hallelujah. And what is wrong with it? And we put these confines and hedges around people and say, you must act this way. And of course, that becomes a yoke, a heavy burden. Jesus His yoke is easy and his burden is light. If we come to him, he will bring joy in our life, even in the midst of persecution or suffering or trial. 
And so that's the point. We cannot force that on anybody. But the person who is inactive and is not working for the kingdom, is not gathering, how do we gather as a Christian? We go out and we get other people who are unsaved. And we say, you need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most of them are going to say, go tell it to somebody else. But there's going to be a few that come along and say, I want that. And we can all be a witness to them. But God wants us to be trained to do that so we don't stumble and fall. Yeah, who was that guy? What was his name? Jonah that led the people out of the wilderness? Yeah, that was the guy, right? And Joshua, wasn't he the short guy that was up in the tree? You know, that Jesus saw? Wasn't that the same guy? And how many churches in the book of Revelation? Like there's 14 of them, isn't there? Yeah, we, we, by the way, none of that stuff that I just told you was true. And hopefully you're able to pick that up. And how many books are in the Bible? 62, right? No, it's 66 books in the Bible and the seven suggestions, not the Ten Commandments. All of that. See, we need to know that stuff. We need to have it under our hats. We need to have it in our minds and in our hearts. If we're doing that, we're being active. Well, and you might say, well, what does God want me to do? I would say, what is your gift? Now, I'm exercising my gift. I think it's a gift. You're here. You know, I'm I'm speaking and people come and that's all good. So I'm pastor, teacher. That's my gift. I have other gifts with that. You have gifts too. What is it? Juggling? No, that's not a spiritual gift. That's a physical gift. Whatever your gift is, it may be prophecy, administration. It may be helps. All of these giving. It may be all of these or some of these or one of them. And God calls us to exercise the gift. If we do that... We are gathering with him and we're not scattering. He goes on to say in verse 31. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. This is what is known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. And some people say, well, it can't be committed today. That was only when Jesus was on earth and the Holy Spirit was working with him and through him to create these miracles and being the witness and all of that. I will tell you the unforgivable sin can be committed today. Well, what is that exactly? If you think you've committed the unforgivable sin and you're sitting here in church, chances are you have not committed the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin, and I'm going to boil it down here. It's just the repeated rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit not giving him due where he says Jesus is the Messiah. You reject that witness. You reject witness or you reject Jesus as Messiah. If you do that for the rest of your life, that is the unforgivable sin. God will not forgive us if we fail to do that. So there is a sin that leads unto death. That's in First John. I believe that that's it. And if people just say, no, don't talk to me about the gospel anymore. I don't want to hear it. Remember, Jesus doesn't force us. He invites us. He gives us an invitation. If we freely accept it, we freely go to heaven. It's that simple. But people of the world think, you're trying to impose your moral beliefs on me. What is this moral majority working in Congress and trying to make everything moral? My brother, who was a staunch atheist at the time, said, the moral majority is neither you know, and he'd wear shirts like that, and it's just he'd try to taunt me. And and one particular time, he wore a shirt. I've told some of you this. He wore the shirt, and it said, "Jesus, save me from your followers." And of course, he wore that for me. 
you know, I came over to my parents' house and he had that on. And I looked at the shirt, I looked at him, and I said, finally! And he goes, what? I said, finally, you're praying to Jesus. This is great. I, you know, I, I have some hope now. You're praying to Jesus. Because he says, Jesus saved me from your followers. You know, so I, I, I just turned it back around on him. He never wore the shirt again, you know, after that. And so we, we want to learn how to deal with those kinds of things, but be active in our faith. And those people who reject Christ forever and ever, they will get exactly what they want exactly what they require, exactly what they request. And that's going to be alone. You can't go anywhere where God is not. And God is in the midst of his people, his creation. He works amongst us. And that's why he's going to separate each individual. When those people are judged and they are sent to hell, they're going to be alone. It's going to be dark. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be regret. All of those things. And I believe that's going to be graduated to the amount that you have rejected Christ, to the amount that, and not you, I believe all of you have had the gospel. That's good. If there's somebody in here who hasn't, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. But it's this idea that we need to be submissive to God, do his will, and if we do, he saves us, and we will not be committing the unforgivable sin. Verse 33, now again, he's talking here about the Pharisees make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? Of course, he's not complimenting them here. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. They brought out evil things. The one evil thing that he's talking about here is uh, um, telling Jesus that the works that he is doing is actually the work of Satan, which was the work of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is calling that evil. And he says, your words are just careless. Verse 36, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment. This is uh, 2 Corinthians I believe it's 510. It says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, but the great white throne judgment is at the end of the book of Revelation where everybody will be there. Uh, For every careless word they have spoken, and these are certainly careless words. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now this word careless is argon in the Greek, and it means inactive, unemployed, lazy, useless, barren, idle, and slow. Have you ever said stupid words? I, I just did it uh, the other day to my wife. I, I, and I turned around and I go, that was stupid. Why did I say that? She goes, yeah, I know. Why did you say that? It's like, if you want to know what I said, I don't remember. I'm getting to that age. It's like senility. But I, I do remember that I, I spoke foolishly. I thought that was a stupid statement. And we've all done it. But the way that we keep from doing that is being more aware of God's word. Now, if we're aware of God's word and you're putting an effort into being a disciple, if you're speaking the things of God with knowledge, and you're being diligent to become a disciple, you will give good counsel concerning truth and God's will. Now with that, there have been several events, and I'll probably have to wrap it up with this because we're going to receive communion How many Christians do you think give bad counsel 
about abortion. How many Christians do you think give bad counsel about marijuana? How many people do you think that are Christians give bad counsel on gender issues? How many people who are Christians give bad counsel on politics? How many people remain silent that are believers? How many people give wrong counsel on issues of morality? Over all the years that I've been doing ministry, repeatedly comes up how people give counsel that would be counsel given by Satan and not counsel given by God. New York, do you know what they did this last week? Are you guys aware? I'm I'm just going to tell you one of these things. I'm going to revisit this next week. New York, the Congress in New York decided that abortion should be legal up, and Virginia did this too, Virginia specifically. They said abortion can be legal up until the point that the woman is dilated. Third trimester. Not only did they say that in New York, they said after the baby is delivered, if it survives the abortion, you can kill it. And that's called infanticide. And the Congress in New York stood up and applauded. They said, this is a great thing. If New York did that, how far away is California? It's right around the corner. And if you've been paying attention to the news, this has been a firestorm over the news. People are retracting what they have said. Well, I really didn't mean it like that. Well, I didn't read the bill that I was saying would go out there. And how many believers are saying, well, abortion should be legal in the cases of rape or incest? You know, some people would say, you're a real right-winger. No, I'm a follower of Christ. Nothing to do with right and left politically. And we have opinions as Christians. And what do our opinions mean? Nothing. It's God's opinion. It's getting our will to conform to his will. I'm going to pick up these other things here, whether it's the marijuana or the gender issues or the politics or remaining silent or the... Um, morality that is out there. If we know God's word and we submit to it, we will be giving good counsel. We will not be like the Pharisees who actually blaspheme against God because we give counsel that we know not from the scripture. That is our task. Now, if you're walking away from here today and you're going, I just feel so condemned. No, just continue on the path. You don't have to remain under condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And the works that we do, we just continue. If we stumble, if we make a mistake, say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get this right. God goes, I know. You're a smoldering wick. You're a bruised reed. And God has compassion on us. Now at this time, what we're going to do is uh, the worship team is going to come up right now. If you guys would come up. We're going to sing a song. If, if there is some error you have made, something that you haven't fallen in line with God, of course, the salvation is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. Just hold on a second, guys. Just hold on a second. And, and that's how you get saved, is by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins. I have done that. I've done that multiple times. I just want to make sure the insurance policy type of thing, like... I'm feeling not saved today, and so I say the prayer, that type of thing. 
<clears throat> but if you've moved beyond that and you know you've given unwise counsel, if you haven't followed the Lord like you should, you call out to the Lord. You go to the altar. The altar is you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. If you feel like you need to do that today, come to the altar. Just say, Jesus, forgive me. I lay my life down on the altar for you. So we're going to sing a song, Come to the Altar. And as we do, if you need to ask God for salvation or just for forgiveness, this is the time to do it. Now, if you guys would shut off the middle lights and go ahead and come forward and get that, we'll...